Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Roundtable. I'm your host, Kevin DeVries, and as always, if you'd like to reach us to the podcast, you can do so by either tweeting us at EPL Roundtable or emailing us at EPLRoundtable at gmail.com. I'm Dave Hendrick from Anfield Index and Total Football. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Dave Hendrick underscore AI or tweet the show at Total Football 889. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin. I'm here in Belfast, and I am a former chairman of the New York Spurs Spurs Club. You can get us at NY Spurs on Twitter. I also do a, a U.S. Um, presidential election podcast at ByTheMinute.com, which you can uh, download at iTunes. All right, well, thanks so much for joining us, guys. Now we're going to start with making the rounds, of course, where we're just going to take a few minutes to discuss what's been happening with our national teams this week. Uh, obviously, Dave, you pick up uh, three points in qualifying again, uh, but currently sitting fourth in the group from whatever uh, weird statistical anomalies that is because all of you are on four points at the moment. Uh, what were your thoughts on the Ireland performance? They didn't play, I didn't think, particularly well, but... In qualifying, it's just about results for me, especially for a country like ourselves, where we don't make every tournament. So we have to grind out points and scrape our way through. And like, it's a tough enough group for us. So like, every win matters. Every point is going to really matter. We've got tougher games to come, but you know we've started pretty well. Hopefully, it'll continue. I think we've got the right man in charge finally in O'Neill after many years of of nonsense. Um, he obviously got us to the Euros, and we did okay there until we got really tired. Um, Coleman played very well, scored a good goal. He's an important player for us. Like, it, it's really hard to you know break down how important he is. He's one of our few legitimately quality players, um, and goals throughout the team. And that's where we're struggling at the minute is getting goals from midfield. Our strikers are in a little bit of a rut at the moment, so. The whole team needs to take a step up, but the win is the win, and that's what matters. All right. Also, Seamus Coleman came out with some quotes just basically against the modernity of football and quoting Louis Vuitton handbags and all this stuff. Do you think that's just kind of a, a broad stroke thing, or do you think he's specifically talking about some members within the island setup? To be honest, I don't know, Kev. It's, it's hard. Like Coleman doesn't talk in public a whole lot, um, and when he does, it does does tend to be rather odd things. Now, he's kind of recently been appointed captain of the team. So whether this is like a new thing for him that he's not comfortable speaking and he just 
blurted out something that popped into his head. I don't know. Um, he's an interesting enough character. I know a couple of people that know him, and they say like he is quite a quirky person, and he he's a bit kind of off the wall. But like he's from Donegal, and he plays for Everton, so he's never going to be fully sane. Um, but I, I wouldn't read too much into it. I think it was just his his own unique take on on trying to motivate players. <laughs> All right. Well, fair enough. Uh, Steve, Northern Ireland also pick up a win. Uh, obviously had a very good Euros. We'll get into that a little bit more in a second. But what were your thoughts on this performance? Well, I, I, I think as Dave says, absolutely right. At, at this stage of any tournament, it's just about winning the games you're expected to win and, and, and racking up as many points as you can ahead of the, the sort of really key games that are going to decide the, the final outcome. Uh, <clears throat> this was obviously this was their first game at the, the refurbished Windsor Park. And, and uh, it was a sellout crowd. We had some special guests ahead of the kickoff. Uh, former players like the, the great Pat Jennings, who is why I'm a Spurs fan, basically, uh, growing up watching him. Uh, we also had some Northern sporting legends, Dame Mary Peters, Carl Frampton, Rory McElroy, who watches the team very regularly. And, and even Snow Patrol's Gary Light, Lightbody also did a lap of legends before the game. But, um, and the newly installed FIFA president was there. So uh, there's always a home for him uh, if he ever gets chased out of office. Uh, so, I mean, what looked on paper, Kev, to be a, a relatively easy um, victory, especially against a, <clears throat> a team without a competitive, a competitive win ever, uh, and who ended up playing with the 10 men for most, most of the game. They seem to be picking up a red card every time they go on the pitch, which doesn't exactly help. Um, but we'd, we'd won all three times we've ever played them, and we'd scored 11, hadn't conceded, so the expectation was obviously pretty high. But it looked, it looked for a while like it was going to be a bit of a frustrating evening. Uh, until um, you know, Steve Davis got us uh, got us on the board with a penalty. Another fantastic man of the match performance from from him. He's very underrated and uh, uh, turns out wonderful performances in the in the Premiership on a regular basis. And and he's scored you know three goals in his last four qualifiers for us. And he's as uh, a very very important uh, influence on the on the pitch for us. And then of course the the, the our talisman Kyle Lafferty scores twice after after coming on with just fifteen minutes to go. And, uh, you know, punctuated uh, in the middle by a goal by uh, Jamie Ward from Burton Albion. But obviously there's there's some concern still about, and you and I have talked about this in, in, in the past during our Euro conversations, about mm-hmm. Laffer just not getting the regular playing time at Norwich City that he, that he, uh, that he should be. I mean, Michael O'Neill had, had started the game with uh, Josh McGuinness, um, Charlton, up front, uh, who tried very hard, as he always does, but it just shows you you know how much of a of a touchstone Lafferty Lafferty is for us. He came on and you know scored twice in in like fifteen minutes. He scored eight times now in the last eleven qualifiers that that he's played. So you know expected uh, take the win. We go on now to a much more different different and difficult um, task. I think we we go to uh, Hanover on Tuesday to play Germany. Uh, so uh, you know as I say, rack up the points that that you're expected to put. In the back, and then uh, and then you know pick your battles. Yeah, currently third in your group, and you mentioned that the expectation to win this specific match. Is there any leftover expectation from the Euros to see you qualify for your second consecutive tournament? Well, I think so. I mean, there has to be really. It's uh, it's the same group, and obviously a lot of them are aging. Uh, so there's there's a sort of a sense that this is our this is our kind of golden generation because there aren't really many 
many players coming through in those key positions. And, and also we had Craig Cascard out injured uh, for this weekend, which, is, which, is a, which was a challenge as well. But Paddy McNair came on later on and, and did pretty well. So, yes, I mean, I think there, there is always going to be uh, that, that sort of carryover from a, from a tournament. I'm sure Dave sort of feels the same, the same way about, uh, about the Republic. I mean, there's a sense that, you know, when we go to play Germany on Tuesday, for example, the big psychological advantage or, or disadvantage, I suppose, depending on how, how you look at it, is that we've played them, obviously, comparatively recently. And, and both teams were going all out, and, and they looked at that stage to be the best team in the tournament. Uh, and, and we were admittedly, you know, very lucky just to lose by the by the single goal. Um, but you know, they know how to play, how we play to our strengths, how we set up. They'll know what to expect. They undoubtedly have, you know, <laughs> the depth of talent to set up to, to counter it. So we'll we'll be under no illusions in terms of, um, you know, how difficult that game is going to be on Tuesday. I mean, you know, we've lost, we lost our last five against them in all competitions and they, the, the Germans, you know, they look great in, in the Euros to be honest. When we came up against them, they, they looked the best team in the tournament um, and they look very good so far uh, in, in this qualifying round. So uh, as, as German teams most always do, I, I mean, they had a pretty emphatic win yesterday um, over the Czech Republic. But then again, you know, we played, we played well uh, to get an away point against the Czechs in our opening game. So, you know, who knows? In a 90-minute contest, anything can happen. Yeah, I'm going to briefly touch on the Netherlands, who did pick up a win. Uh, Steve and I are both very pleased, I'm sure, with Vincent Janssen's goal. Uh, they took brilliantly, kind of pushed to bed some of the uh, lack of confidence talk that was floating around him. Uh, so obviously great from him. Quincy Proma showed up with two goals. I think they were his first two for the uh, senior team, so that's very impressive, and I do hope that we get to see him in a uh, more legitimate league soon. Seeing Strootman back is amazing after his whole injury history, being out almost a full year, then having a setback, then finally coming back. He looks good. His passing from deep midfield is so valuable. I do think long-term he's going to be paired probably with Blint, um, just because I think Jetro Willems offers more uh, as a modern left-back just with his pace, but obviously Blint can hold down pretty much any position on a pitch and do fairly well. Um, but yeah, uh, get, get a debut at right back. Hopefully, uh, won't have to rely on him too much going forward. Uh, Dave and I mentioned on the radio show this morning, the fact that Van Dyke isn't, you know, a lock in this team is crazy. Uh, but Stefan de Vrij continues to impress, continues to develop well, uh, at Lazio. And so that's very pleasing. Also, uh, Bruma made his big move this summer. So hopefully he'll continue to impress. And it feels like Veltman is probably going to be the next one, uh, to leave Ajax. To, to step up to a, a bigger league as well. So pretty much uh, not much you can complain about in a 4-1 win. Obviously, the big test is Monday against France, uh, but currently topping the group is obviously a very positive thing. I'll level on points after the draw with Sweden, which was pretty disappointing. Um, we had on uh, uh, the guy that runs the Swedish Liverpool site, Dave, you may know, um, we had him on, and uh, I asked him, uh, without Ibrahimovic, if there's anybody that uh, national team should be concerned about from the Sweden front. And he just said no, point blank. <laughs> so uh, disappointing that if that's their perspective, Netherlands weren't able to beat them in the last international uh, break. But uh, well, like, all you know, know, sense of security, I think, that's <laughs> uh, not going to their trade secrets. Yeah, and, you know, Seb Larsson hasn't really done anything meaningful on a football pitch in like two and a half years. So, yeah, obviously, 
they're not the best team at the moment, but you know they're also on four points right now, so they've, they've done the business. But as for Netherlands, uh, some people saying that this settles the Danny Blind thing and that this this shows that he should be uh, the manager. Long term, I'm still not that confident in that. I think internally it's still being murmured that really the, the long-term answer is Van Nistelrooy, who's obviously been on the last two regimes. So maybe it goes there long-term, but uh, as I said, hard to complain after a 4-1 win. Uh, and then just briefly on the United States, uh, they won on arguably the worst pitch I've ever seen in my life in Cuba. I uh, left a lot of the Cuban fans disappointed, but pretty cool. I, I think Steve actually kind of getting to a political place. That was much more important politically than it was about football. It was particularly going to be close, and on that kind of pitch, uh, it did prevent it from being more, but not, not much to discuss, and it was just a friendly. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. The president of CONCACAF, newly minted, only been in charge for about six months saying that it's crazy that with some of the smaller countries in CONCACAF that they've had people inquire about sponsorships and stuff and then ask when their next meaningful game is. And for some of the smaller nations in CONCACAF, it can be three years from when they're asked, which is impressive that there can be just this stretch of friendlies. And then people often wondering why some of the CONCACAF teams don't perform as well in tournaments, although the 2014 World Cup, obviously not a good example of that, as many of them succeeded. But... Uh, Dave, I guess, take it away. How would you improve this current qualifying process? I, I hate international football the way it's currently structured. I just I, It just annoys me. Um, these meaningless international breaks that we just don't need. for Like friendlies, just abolish friendlies, for starters. Abolish them. They serve no purpose. The smaller nations is fine. Let them have friendlies, that's fine. You know, it, it's a good way for them to get games to bring in some money or whatever. That's all fine. But I don't like the way the Euro structure and the World Cup structure is. I would rather see... Like, I, I think there's too many teams going to tournaments, for starters. I didn't enjoy the Euros. I thought there was far too many teams. I thought the quality was, you know, really diluted. And, like, I've said this before, and people said, oh, you're just having a pop at Northern Ireland. Well, no, because Northern Ireland won. So regardless, they'd have won their group. They'd have gone through. So, And I, I was absolutely ecstatic for Northern Ireland to get through. The fact that we got through as well, it was the first time ever that both teams from the island went to the same tournament was just incredible. Absolutely incredible. I was so happy to see it happen. I'd love to see it happen again for the World Cup. But I, I think the Euros should be an eight-team tournament and the World Cup a 16-team tournament. But I think instead of having these breaks for group you know, groups of qualifiers, make it a knockout tournament. Make it like the old European Cup over two seasons. And then, so in every, you play a knockout game. So every single game matters. And there's no nonsense. There's no, you know, England playing Malta. Like nobody wants to watch England play Malta. And I don't care that 81,000 people went. Loads of them got comp tickets and loads of them got cheap tickets. So I don't care about the attendance. Make the games matter. So, once the, the Euros end, what we should have just had is the first round of the World Cup. 
in Europe, obviously, the European teams play each other. The Asian teams, maybe you mix Asia and Africa or whatever. Make it into four groups and four teams come out. And yes, there's going to be a weaker weaker nations because Asia's not as strong as Europe or whatever. But figure it, you'll figure it out over time. Like People who can actually put time and effort into this, not just me who came up with this idea, threw it out there and then haven't really spent enough time fully structuring it. But I, I just think that if we were to send the four best South American teams who had worked their way through a knockout tournament, the four best Europeans, the four best Africans, the four best Asians, I think the World Cup would just mean a lot more. And I think the games would be of a higher quality. I think the qualifiers would be so much higher quality as well. Because like I say, every game would matter. Teams like Malta and Cyprus and the Faroe Islands, they could have a mini tournament to play in. And maybe there's two spots in a round of 16 or 24 or whatever it is that they can earn. Because we don't need to see all these teams in it. Because, like, what's the benefit to Liechtenstein of getting beaten 10-0 time after time after time again? Like, who benefits from that? Because the players don't. The guys beating them 10-0 don't, except for, like, nonsense, you know, international scoring records. So, like, and people have said to me, oh, but the money, the sponsorship in the World Cup is just too great. Look at the sponsorship money that the Champions League draws in. Are you actually telling me that if you ran the international tournaments that way, that you wouldn't get more sponsorship money? Of course you would. You'd have so many national brands coming in to invest in this. It would be absolutely ridiculous how much money you'd make. And then for the Euros, it's just done the same way. The tournament starts in September of, you know, say September 2020 will be the next one. And then the next, or sorry, September 2018, and then the next Euros is July 2020. And when you get there, there's just eight teams, and it's the eight best teams in Europe that have won their way through to meeting that competition. And you're shortening that competition as well, which means the players aren't going to be as exhausted. Like, look at the final. You have you have injuries. The players pick up in the tournament because they're overplayed. They're exhausted because they've been playing pretty much 12 months at that point. It would I limit the amount of suspensions as well because you're not picking up as many yellow cars or whatever so for me like just do away with qualifiers altogether make it single elimination or you know two legs whatever two legs would be great like the old UEFA Cup and just play it that way and, and structure it over the two years that it's a nice break for the players between you know from club games not like this crap where they're been brought away from the clubs for a week and a half playing two games and then, like, Ireland, for example, played Georgia at home. Now we're going to Moldova. That's a hell of a flight. Mm. And it, that's just extra miles on players. And, like, I don't care what anyone says. Sitting on an airplane for that, that long isn't good for you, um, especially when you're, like, a finely tuned athlete or whatever. Um, I, I just oh, I hate international football the way it is. <laughs> mm. It just bothers me so much. And the other thing I do as well is, I, I do away with this garbage of having to give the World Cup to every country in the world. Like, we shouldn't be going to Russia for a World Cup. We shouldn't be going to Qatar for a World Cup. We really shouldn't have been in Brazil because they couldn't handle it at all. The, the whole organization was a mess, as it was with the Rio Olympics. Um, put it in countries where they actually have the structure in place. Stop this crap of 
pumping hundreds of millions into building stadiums that aren't needed and are never going to be used again. Look at that stadium they built in the Amazon. It's been it's been used now by a team that draw about 5,000 people. They don't need that stadium. If you're going to build stadiums, build them like the Olympic Stadium in London where you can basically take them down and restructure them and make them much smaller. So small, small teams like West Ham can take home in them um, <laughs> after it's done. And take the rest of that money and put it into that government. Put it into the Brazilian government where they can feed people. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? They can feed people. They can help homeless people. They can help cure illnesses. Then we wouldn't have to worry about things like Zika virus because yeah. we could put hundreds of millions into cure for that. Put the money in the right places. Put it into youth grass, grassroots football as well. Give back to the future of the game. And stop this crap of, you know, the corruption we know is, is rampant. It still is. I don't care if Bladder is gone. Corruption's not going to be Infantino said that the corruption in England wouldn't be tolerated, and he'd know because he was there yeah. when all the corruption in the you know, was like, happening. That's, I mean, that's the, the most hilarious thing that's <laughs> happened in a while is the England manager having to um, resign because he got caught taking a bung. The same guy who was exposed by BBC years ago for being corrupt, the same guy who there's been rumours about for about 10 years that him and his agent... When they get young players, they basically he Allardyce would bully the player into signing with this agent, and then when the agent sold them, or when the player got sold, the agent gets his fee and kicks a a, a chunk back to Allardyce. Ravel Morrison revealed that a few years ago, and nobody yeah. cared to listen because Ravel Morrison isn't, you know, the most uh, like reliable. <laughs> yeah, but it yeah. turns out he was right, you know. And I think if people did an in-depth dive into Allardyce. I think they'd find a lot of skeletons in the closet. But with the international game, there's just a, so much we need to change with it. Like, it could be incredible. Like, there's nothing like, and, you know, Steve, I'm sure you'll agree, like, because we grew up on the same island where we weren't going to every tournament. But there's nothing like the joy of your, your nation qualifying. Like, you would have seen it in 86. We had it in 90 and then 94. And then obviously both teams this summer. When your team gets to that and, you know, going to any of the games, like there's always an incredible atmosphere at Windsor. It's the, the same at, you know, whatever the stadium in Dublin is called, or the three arena. It seems to change. <laughs> it changes about every fortnight. I just call it Lansdowne Road because that's what it always was when I was growing up. That The atmosphere there is incredible. International football should be a celebration of everything that's great about the game. But it's not. Like, when was the last time we had a good World Cup? Oh six. When was the last time we had a great World Cup? Probably 98. Um, I can't remember the last good Euros. It's probably 02, maybe. I could be wrong. It could be, oh, sorry, 2000, maybe. Um, like These tournaments are so saturated and yeah, the players yeah. are so tired. You I, know? I, I totally agree. There's a lot of very good points there, Dave, and I, I actually agree with an awful lot of them. Uh, I think it comes to, and I, one of the things that I absolutely agree with, I like the idea that every game matters. But the problem is, how do you separate the games that matter competitively from the games that matter from a revenue perspective? And it's come down to an awful lot of the smaller associations, and you hinted at this, only exist because in the Euros, in the World Cup, they get drawn against one of the big nations, and that's basically their meal ticket for the next four years. This, the, you know, the, the, um, the two competitive games against them. Uh, and, and I think, it, it, you know, there's also, you mentioned the Champions League would, would it be great if the World Cup was more like the Champions League? Well, would it really? I mean, you, you end up with the same teams 
competing every every tournament. You have to have some romance. You have to have some. I mean, Dundalk. Look at Dundalk. Uh, this season almost made it into the Champions League, and and the fact that we and you don't qualify on a regular basis makes it all the more satisfying when we actually do. And you said that. So I think it's a matter of balancing off this this idea of the corporate world against the romance of football, that anything's possible, 11 against 11 over 90 minutes. Uh, and so, yeah, unfortunately, I think an awful lot of good suggestions there. I like the idea of going back to some kind of knockout tournament or, or going to some kind of knockout tournament. But, but then you have a situation where you have nothing else to play for. If you have a situation at the moment where, okay, we're going to go to uh, to Hanover on Tuesday and probably lose, but our next game after Hanover is at home to Azerbaijan, who for some reason are now second in our group. So that then becomes a much more crucial game for us than actually going, you know, if we're able to take something from, from the Germany game, great. If we're not, at least we can, we can win that game at Windsor against Azerbaijan and still be in a pretty strong position in the group. If we go to a knockout tournament, as you suggest, we could go to Azerbaijan on a wet Tuesday afternoon, lose one nil, and then that's that's the end of our interest in the tournament. So, True, but at the same time, Germany could come to Windsor on a on a really windy Wednesday night, which we've had plenty of, and you guys could sneak a two one win, and then you're through and they're gone. Yeah, I know, but yes, but yeah, uh, like for me, for me, growing up, the best competitions, the FA Cup was incredible. And the European Cup when we were European, growing up was was phenomenal. The knockout tournaments. Absolutely agree with you. I hate the Champions League as well, and I and I won't even start on the Europa League because that's just another podcast for another day. Like I, I hate what UEFA have done with these tournaments. Yeah. I hate Michel Platini. What <laughs> he ruined the UEFA Cup. But but I think <laughs> both agree that the the problem is we can't unravel this structure now because there are too many vested interests mm. who who won't say this is in the interest of making a more interesting tournament, whether it's the Europa League, whether it's the World Cup. Uh, they're only interested in securing the revenues uh, and the corporate side of it going forward. And and I think that's going to be the big that's going to be the big problem. But I do agree with you. There are a lot of there are a lot of issues that need to be addressed. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean that's the thing. It, it's about finding the right way to do it. Like I do agree, from for, especially for, for ourselves, Ireland and Northern Ireland, we don't get there all the time. So I would like to find a way where you could ensure that you know every game was mattering, but that teams maybe you do it in a tiered structure. I, I'm not really sure, but for me, it's just like these international breaks. I don't really see the purpose of having players play two games in three days. Yeah. spanning Europe like it doesn't really happen in the Premier League like if you play on the if you're playing on Wednesday you tend to play on Saturday beforehand you get that four day break and then you're back on the Sunday or whatever it for me it's it's just difficult with with the internationals because as well as that you're you're dragging players away from their clubs and you're like for example we've had players and you you guys at Spurs you had players we have Klopp you guys have Poch did you enjoy when your players went away and worked with Roy Hodgson? I, I didn't. And I didn't enjoy when Daniel Sturridge would constantly come back injured. Um, and, and like, that's the thing. You're sending them away and you're putting them in the trust of these managers who a lot of international managers are dreadful. Um, and, and a lot of them are archaic in their ways. And when they're going and they're playing against these poorer teams, they're just getting kicked and they're playing like on crappy pitches and 
you know, I, I remember one time Scotland played in the was it in Estonia or somewhere, and Estonia didn't turn up. That's right. But, That's but right. The, I remember hearing the Scottish players afterwards saying they were just so happy the game had gone that way because they were so worried about like fracturing an ankle on the pitch because it was just like a cabbage patch and. You know, and, and that, that's where it goes back as well for me to the, this money for stadiums for tournaments. Why, why does France need to build three new stadiums? You know, why does Brazil need to build these new stadiums when there's stadiums when they there? Fully functional leagues, yeah. Yeah, if the stadiums there, upgrade those. If they can't be upgraded, don't give them the tournament. Give a chunk of that money to Estonia or to Moldova or Faroe Islands and help them build a decent stadium and with a decent pitch that's just for inter- international football and maybe one of the club teams will play there but make sure it's maintained and then like I say give the money back to grassroots and, and give it to the government's help like let them help people because you know the last two World Cups South Africa obviously like we know the history of South Africa there's obviously major issues still there Brazil a country with massive poverty and we're not helping anybody there. Like that World well, Cup. If we give the on. government the money, the people wouldn't well, the end pro- up getting it. That's it. The, pro- the problem is giving giving the government the money. Maybe you, you maybe you create some sort of NGO and you send them in and let them distribute the money or whatever. I, I don't know, but but in a way, isn't that what FIFA should be? FIFA oh, of course. Oh, of course. Yeah. But, but Seb Blatter had a bank account to be yeah. lining. <laughs> I would love. I swear, but I would love. But he didn't even have the see. decency to name it after his dog. No, <laughs> no, but, I mean, but took, those are all very good points, Dave. <laughs> Absolutely. And one other thing I'd throw into the mix as well is everybody says, "Oh, the international breaks. It's the same for everyone. It's the same for the big teams, the small teams." But actually, you know, some of the domestic leagues across Europe uh, operate on on totally different schedules. So, so totally different calendar. So you know, some of them have winter breaks, some of them don't. Some of them be in the middle of their season by the time we uh, we end up playing there. So you know, there's there's considerations for the, the players and the fans should really be at the at the heart of uh, how we organise uh, representative football going forward. Yeah, you mentioned there that it uh, hurts everyone the same, but it clearly doesn't because the better your team is, the more likely it is that you're going to have more internationals. Like Crystal Palace just eked. Townsend in there, but Scott yeah. Dan has been a very solid center back in the Premier League for years and hasn't gotten in, so they would have had no one. Kabai not getting uh, much recognition anymore, mostly because he hasn't been as good for Palace as he probably should be. So it, it is top-heavy. So if you have a club kind of like Tottenham, we're about to go and face West Brom. I mean, I know that Chadley just finally got called up, which was the point, by the way. I have no resentment about that from a Spurs perspective. I saw some people, especially in the fantasy community, like, oh, I bet you hope you kept Chadley. He just wouldn't have probably done this for us. He wouldn't be so in your team. Let him go. Yeah. Exactly. So That's let him go. Let him score goals and let him get back in the national team, which was the point. But That's it. people are that... in the same toast about Benteke. Oh, look at Benteke yeah. proving he's all wrong. Well, no, because we have Firmino, Sturridge, and Origi who are all better than him, and Sue our style better. He's great for Palace. Congratulations. I'm delighted for him. But we're happy with what we have and the money we got from. Same with you guys and Chadley. You got a great fee for him. He wouldn't get in your team. You've got Lamella, Son, Eriksson. Where's he going to play? Like you guys, we play Ollie know. on the wing sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But, but so him anyway. Him going there and scoring goals is great. And actually, I probably shouldn't have picked West Brom because half their team uh, starts for Northern Ireland. But uh, a lot of times, the smaller teams don't have a lot of people that are going away. So if you have a matchup like this weekend, like Spurs versus uh, West Brom or other matchups in that kind of vein, you are at a natural disadvantage because Dave, you already mentioned the travel. 
Mm. You have these people flying all over the place. Like, every time Sun flies to South Korea for a couple of games, that is insane for him to get to and get all the way back. And the one that annoys it, me is the African Cup of Nations. The African Cup of Nations, yep. Like, exactly. it, it, it's such a disadvantage for African players as well because there are clubs out there who will not buy African players purely because mm-hmm. they don't want to lose them for at least a month in the middle of a season, at a key point in the season as well. Right. You know? So, it, obviously, it's it's too hot to play their tournament in the middle of the summer. I don't know what, what the workaround is, but they have to figure something out. You know, maybe uh, like Gary Lineker interviewed Jurgen Klopp quite recently and said that he's heard the Premier League is looking towards a winter break. Mm. Maybe they try and move the African Cup of Nations to coincide with that. But it's not just it's not just the mid-season thing, Kev. You look at the Euros. Garbage teams don't have loads of players at the Euros going deep into the Euros, you know, Um, but the top teams do. So they're being punished for having good players. Right. Yeah. Which is probably why the Premier League has been so poor for the last few years because the top teams are getting their players. Like, you look at someone like Chris Smalling, isn't first choice at Manchester United. He's kind of in and out of the team, but he's always in the England squad. And for years, it's always been like that. Like, Wes Brown was never first choice at United, but somehow accumulated a bunch of caps while playing for United. And managers, international managers, will always pluck from the top teams regardless. Because whether they see the players or not, they'll they go and watch. It's an indication of quality. Exactly. Like you look at Deschamps, he he wouldn't he won't pick Caballé. If Caballé was playing for Spurs, I guarantee he'd be in the French squad. Mm-hmm. Well, Even if we have that get... example because we have Sissoko, yeah. who is yeah. in the French team. You know, um, like Newcastle, while not a good team last year, they're a they're a high profile club. Crystal Palace aren't. Um, it's you know it's it's always been the way like you, you'll see it with with loads of players like um what was that Turkish guy two guy played for Blackburn years ago yeah. and was left out of the Turkish team for quite a while like six months or eight months because the manager wasn't going to watch Blackburn play mm-hmm. so he was picking players who he also probably wasn't seeing but were playing at more high profile clubs because in their mind it's the case of oh. Like they're, it's a sign of quality. Like Roy Hodgson wasn't going to go and watch West Brom against Crystal Palace if if United were playing at the same time. Right. Like if United were playing Spurs at the same time, he'll go to United Spurs. Now any of us would do the same. Yeah. Funnily his, enough, though, Southgate didn't go to City Tottenham. No. At the weekend. <laughs> no, strange. But Kev, that's a that's a very good point, and it actually, you know, let me put it back to you because it's kind of the Klinsman argument in reverse, isn't it? That that mm. Klinsman took the American squad and basically said to them, "Look, you have to be playing at the highest level you you possibly can," and that basically means playing overseas, playing in Europe. If you if you can, you know, he was more than happy, I think, for. And correct me if I'm wrong, for American players who were on the verges of the U.S. squad to sit on the bench at a European team rather than play every week in the MLS. Yeah, he certainly has. And you can feel that international flavor that's being added to uh, the U.S. national team. And, and that's like Abby Wambach came out and stood against it and was like, uh, they don't sound like us or something weird to that effect. It was like, well, this that's kind of the point of America, you know, the melting pot and all that stuff. But, like, you have Cameron Carter-Vickers, right? He was the U-20 captain for the U.S., is about to get his first call-up to the senior team, but obviously a very uh, British influence in his career. But 
Klinsman, yeah, obviously wants more European experience. He's been abroad. He He's not fooled by uh, elements of the MLS, although, Dave, I know you've become much more sympathetic towards the MLS of late. But the point is, the U.S. men's national team and the MLS have diametrically opposed goals. The U.S. men's national team wants its players to be playing in the hardest competition they can because you learn from competition. You learn from who you're facing against. I can't beat him going left. Okay, well, I need to either find a way to maneuver the ball over there or cut in on the right. And you just learn from these experiences against better players. And the MLS's goal is as many good American players in the league because otherwise it's not as profitable, won't be as followed. So, yeah, Klinsman obviously does want all his best players to be playing in Europe. And I think it was why uh, people were concerned when uh, both Michael Bradley went to Toronto and when Dempsey went to Seattle Sounders after they had been at Tottenham and Roma, respectively. And Joel Altador as well. A lot, yeah. of, a lot of people weren't too happy that he came back um, to, to the MLS. Yeah, Jermaine Jones as well. Jermaine Jones, another one. Um, they don't want to see these players playing over here. They're, they'd be quite horrified at the idea of someone like Christian Pulisic packing up and coming home. Goodness, yeah. Because the, the standard of the league in Europe, the standard of the leagues in Europe are much higher. Like even the Eredivisie is yeah. slightly... No, no, it's not a huge gap, but it is still slightly better than the MLS. Well, the difference is that the reason the Eredivisie is that low is because all of them are 24-year-old Dutch kids. Exactly. <laughs> and, the, and the best ones just get cherry-picked by other clubs around the world. Right. Um, but, I, I, you know, a, a Josie Altador could go to Holland, and he's done it before and do really well. He yeah, could Holland. go to Portugal and do really well. Um, he could go to Austria and do really well, or Switzerland and do really well. We've seen that he's failed in England, but that doesn't mean he'd fail in Spain or Italy or France. Or but France. Yep. The, the thing is, like... Steve uh, Gennaro, who I do total football with, um, met up with Kaka last week when Orlando came to Toronto and had a quick chat with him. And um, Kaka said he thinks within five to eight years, MLS will be one of the top leagues in the world. And it's great to hear from a player like him who's been around and you know played in Spain, played in Italy, played in Brazil. But it's that's still five to eight years away. We're taught that we're talking about that next generation. We're talking about kids who right now are 10 and 12 years of age. By the time they're at senior level, it's going to be a top league. For the guys that are there now, they need to be in Europe. They have to be in Europe. For the future of the American game, they have to be in Europe. And for the future of the national team, I mean. But for the future... So it's about striking that balance of do we sacrifice the next four to six to eight years of the national team for the good of the domestic game, knowing that longer term we'll reap the rewards at national international level, or do we just keep plowing away the way we are now where the national team are respectable and they're, they're pretty good. They can, you know, do well in tournaments, but they're not going to win anything. Like they're not going to win a Copa America. They're not going to win a world cup, um, especially not with Klinsman in charge. Uh, but you know, it's, it's about striking that balance and finding the middle ground of, you know, you don't obviously want to just write off the national team, especially when you do have good players who are in their prime years now. You don't want to just kind of write off their international future and say, well, look, sorry, we're going to be crap for the next eight years. <laughs> um, when you've got the likes of of Wood, Pulisic, Green, like these kind of guys coming through at European I mean, clubs. Johnson, by the way, is amazing in yeah. Germany, but we don't yeah. really see it as much with the men's team, which is kind of strange. The interesting thing about that timetable that you said is that it actually coincides 
with what we're hearing about youth sports in America right now, that a lot of parents are pulling their kids from American football due to concussion concerns. And the issue in America, for people that don't know, for, for our British listeners especially, every kid plays soccer here. Sorry, I had to use the S word. I'm talking about America. Everyone plays it until they reach about middle school, high school age. And then you start getting the best athletes get turned towards American football or yeah. towards basketball or towards baseball. Or baseball. Right. There's the money. So well, a lot right. of it's money. Yeah. A lot of it is the money. But with the health concerns that are burgeoning in these other sports, I think that that generation is probably about right. Because right now there's been about a 18 to 20 percent drop in the conversion rate from other sports to football in high school. Mm-hmm. And I think that will only continue to grow. And so those are the high schoolers now. So they're, you know, they're only like four or five years away from being the age where you'd be a footballer. But the the generation right under them, which it sounds like is what Kaka is speaking about, which is insane that I talk to you and you talk to Steve and Steve talks to Kaka. But um, (laughs) uh, all in all, yeah, I think that that timetable is probably very realistic. And obviously we know the population of football is growing here in the States uh, exponentially. I think NBC... if we end up ever winning a major tournament, we have to award something to NBC Sports, whose coverage is so amazing that people that didn't care are caring just because the service is good, yeah. just because the matches are easy to find. So anybody that's like, oh, I wonder if I should care, can immediately watch a match and be like, oh, this is awesome. Like I've yeah, tried. You, you don't have to care. It's just it's there if you want to kill an hour and a half. That's it. Yeah. Well, like but- I've tried to get into women's football for about the last two years, ever since we covered the Women's World Cup here on this show. And every time I talk to Kieran or Andrew Gibney, it's like, oh, cool. Is there any easy way to watch matches yet? And it's just a resounding no. No. But and I, the- I spoke to Jessica Fishlock, who plays for yeah. Seattle Rain, and she said that's the biggest thing uh, facing women's football is the lack of coverage, except for when the Women's World Cup is on and maybe right. the Olympics. Otherwise, But then people no- get interested, and then they want to carry it on, yeah. and they can't. But that's the difference. It's in the Premier League now, with the way NBC's covering it, which... Who I'm sure would annoy every British listener because every game is available every, every week and then five days afterwards. It's so funny. Like I, I lived in Australia and now I obviously live in Canada and I can watch every single Premier League game. When I lived in England and Ireland, I could watch very little. What what they actually allowed me to watch. And that was it. Like, Kev, you mentioned with, with the, the, the growth of the game in America and a lot of it, again, goes back to grassroots and kids been you know parents been forced to shell out quite a lot of money for their kids to play and it does become very very expensive like like Gennaro has four kids they all play soccer it, it costs a guy a fortune he shouldn't have to play yeah shouldn't have to play yeah it's like pay, middle pay to upper play. class in america and you look at like let's look at alan iverson look at russell westbrook guys like Derek rose these guys could easily have translated their athletic ability to soccer or to football they could have there's no question if they'd been put into a football environment at 10 or 12 rather than a basketball environment, they could have become truly special, like athletic freaks, those guys. Mm-hmm. You look at the two countries that have probably shaped the modern game the most, Brazil and Holland, because what's, what's happened in Spain came from Holland with Cruyff. Mm-hmm. And the key to both those styles is street football. There isn't yeah, that. that. That doesn't exist in, in America. Because, well, futsal, futsal is one thing. I'm talking about playing on the streets in, with, with, a, with a football, mm-hmm. with a full-size football. Like, there's basketball courts on every block in New York. There's very few soccer pitches. Like, even cages where you can play five a side. The, 
the ones that there are, you have to pay to play in. That's that's an urban environment, Dave. I think if you go further out of the cities, I mean, certainly I, I lived in Tennessee. I played on the University of Tennessee soccer team in 82, 83 that won the SEC. And those guys that I played with, it was myself and one Argentinian player, and the rest were homegrown. They were all domestic players. Their kids are now playing soccer. It's, it's, it's an exponential growth that I think Kevin sort of hinted at. And I think, ironically, just talking about the fortunes of the uh, – the MLS per se, and I think an awful lot of it might even be out of their hands because an awful lot of it could could be dependent on on what happens in China and the, yeah. the development of the Chinese domestic league. If if China's league becomes the place where players just past the apogee of their career or are looking for you know a, a, a comfortable sort of retirement check, if that's where they go. Uh, as opposed to the MLS, then that's going to have a knock-on effect in terms of um, crowds that it generates and the yeah. skill level that that you have uh, among the team. So, so I think there's an awful lot of things that the MLS can do, but there's an awful lot of things that are also out of their hands. Exactly. I mean, you look at a guy like Graziano Pelle, like a mid-table Premier League player, now in China earning somewhere close to two hundred thousand. He's now the like, fourth highest earning footballer in the world. It's just wow. it's absolutely insane. It's just insane. He is he is a fine player. I I enjoyed watching him play for Southampton. He was very good before he went there. He would have been the ideal type of player to come across to the MLS maybe next summer as he hits thirty one, thirty two. Big but, physical striker like that. Yeah, <laughs> what, but why is he going to come across and play for? I think it's like a hundred thousand, the equivalent of about a hundred thousand dollars, when he can go to China and earn like three times that. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. he's not. They're not going to. And and like Steve is absolutely right that what's happening in China should put everybody on notice, really, because they they don't seem to have any short any kind of shortage of money. Uh, there's no you know bottom to the pit. We're seeing it like. Uh, Alex Teixeira, Shakhtar Donetsk. Oh my Donetsk gosh! There. Yeah. Liverpool had that deal pretty much wrapped up, but weren't willing to pay the whole sum uh, up front or whatever happened. And next thing, this Chinese co- team come in, they offer ten million more, and they offer to pay the whole lot straight away, and then they offer him like double the wages the Liverpool were offering. And you're just like, that is absolutely ridiculous. Like, that's that's one of my other pet peeves. Is like we need to find a way where players are, are paid in line with their ability. Like I don't mind Messi and Ronaldo and Iniesta and those guys turning silly money, <laughs> but like Alex to share is a, he's a good, again, he's a good to very good player, but you know, he, he hadn't really done anything in the game to prove that he was worth that kind of money. He had some really good seasons with Shakhtar, but the Ukrainian league is not exactly the, the toughest league in the world. Um, it's just the Chinese thing is just crazy. Like it's, it's another wrinkle to a, a really, really like strange game and a, t- a strange time in the game that we're experiencing at the moment. I like, yeah. I like to think it's unsustainable, guys. I really I hope so. Well, the Qatari and Saudi leagues tried it for a couple of years, and then that's what led to the whole um, oh crap. What was was the Ghanaian player that went to Sunderland was there for uh, six months? God, uh, I know. Oh yes, Gayan. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, yes, that's right. He's, yeah. Yeah, he used to wear number three, but he played up front. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which I, is I, much dumber than Dempsey wearing two, Cough. Yeah. 
I don't know what you guys think, but I, I think what might be the un, the undoing of the of the Chinese experiment is the fact that there isn't a competitive equivalent of the Champions League for Asia. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that, that could definitely be a problem unless they somehow link up with uh, Australia, maybe. Like, but then, but then you'd basically have the Concacaf Champions League. Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, there are three decent teams, and then the rest of it's mm. just kind of for show. Yeah, that's that, that's the issue as well. Like, it, it and and the other thing as well is it, like I, I've a friend of mine is married to a Chinese woman. We went for six weeks for the wedding and all the nonsense that goes on around it. And it is it's a hard, like it's it's one thing moving country. It's a, moving to China would be totally different. Like the culture shock yeah, is real. Culture. Yeah, yeah, you know, and like I've I've heard players that went there and like wanted to come home straight away. Um, I saw an interview with Marcello Lippi who went across to coach and he said that it, he never really has, has settled properly. His family didn't settle there at all and wanted to come home. Like So like that that's a real thing. And for as much money as there is in China, there's an incredible amount of poverty as well. And like, again, like someone needs to have a word like Graziano Pelle doesn't need 200 grand a week. Give him 50 and his, his strike partner is Poppy Cisse, by yeah, the way. Yeah, it's just ludicrous, like. Yeah, yeah. You know, All right, um, well, before we get out of here, I want to talk about England a little bit. <laughs> we obviously don't have any Englishmen on. We've already done that with the whole Sam Allardyce, Gareth Southgate thing. But I just kind of wanted to get the three of us our external perspectives on England's decision to go Southgate now, the potential long-term of Mancini since he was a guest of the FAs at that match, and just overall what we think about how England are doing. So they, you know, they get a little less biased opinion of the development of the English national team. We'll start with you, Dave. Look, England should be one of the preeminent powers in world football. They're the inventors of the game. They're, you know, they've got great tradition, and it's obviously the league where we all support our teams. For a guy like Southgate to be England manager is, is frankly embarrassing. He his, his career management or his man his club management career. Uh, was a disaster. Three years at Borough, 29.8% win percentage. Uh, Tim Sherwood would be, you know, apoplectic over such nonsense. And he's the England manager. Now, yes, it may only be for four games, or it may be beyond that, because he'll be cheap, he'll be a yes man, and when they eventually fire him, which they will, he won't complain all that much. Um. I, I don't understand how he ever got the 21's job. I have no idea how he's the one that's rolled into this job, having done nothing to suggest he's good enough. Like, for me, the England manager should be someone that you could look at and say, I could see him coaching a top club. He could easily coach, you know, at worst, a top eight club in the Premier League, ideally a top six or a top four club. Mancini could do that. He won the title with City. He won titles with Inter Milan. Southgate, I don't even think Southgate would get an interview for a Premier League job. Now, it's it's all fine for us. Like, I grew up in Ireland. Steve's from Northern Ireland. So, for us, seeing England not do so well is always a little bit nice because yeah. we've had to put up with them for all our lives being much better than we were. But I still think for international football on the whole, it's important for England to be good. Like, yeah. Allardyce was a cheap appointment. Hodgson before him was a cheap appointment because the expense of... Ericsson and the super expensive Capello experiments didn't pay off. Like they didn't win the major tournaments. Yes, Capello did brilliantly in qualifying and all that kind of stuff, but it didn't pay off in the tournaments. 
so they went with the cheap options. They went with Hodgson, who is a mediocre manager, always has been, always will be. And then they went with Allardyce, who's another me- mediocre mid-table, you know, old school, old school English guy who was cheap and, you know, has gone quietly because he made an absolute cock up of things. I, I just, I don't, I don't like it. I, I think England needs to make a statement. Mancini, I'm not a huge Mancini fan, but he, he is the caliber of manager that's more suited to such a job than like Gareth Southgate. I wouldn't, I wouldn't like, I wouldn't want Gareth Southgate managing a pub yeah. team because he's proven he's garbage. No, I, I absolutely agree with all of that, Dave. I think that's right. And and really, in a way, it sort of tacks back to what you were saying about the qualifying versus the tournaments. And, and it plays into this idea that England can dominate a weak qualifying group mm. and then get exposed at the, at the top. <laughs> well, didn't they, didn't they win every game in the Euro qualifiers or something absolutely. ludicrous? Wasn't it Wasn't it 10 wins out of 10 or something? Absolutely. And then they, then they go to the Euros and embarrass themselves in front of the world. But, but, and also the, the effect of that is to heighten the expectations because yeah. it's England, England manager, is, it's, a, it's basically a poison chalice. I mean, Capello, you would, you would think would probably be the epitome of who you would want managing a team with that degree of talent. And it, yeah. it failed. And, and I, I mean, personally, I mean, for, for me, the two, the best two English managers that we've had were, were uh, Bobby Robson as, as probably the best man manager and, yeah. and Huddle is probably the best tactical mind yeah. to manage the England team. But um, where they go from here, uh, I, I mean, they could they could do worse than Mancini. They could do worse also than Arsene Wenger. I'll be honest with you. I mean, if if there was a remote possibility that he was interested in taking that, I would snap him up. Yeah, so would I. But I I, I actually think he may take the French job in 2018. Yeah. And I said to Kev this morning on the radio, I have this theory <laughs> that Wenger will leave Arsenal. And he'll go take the France job. De Boer will leave into Milan and take the Arsenal job. Mm. Um, Simeone will leave Atletico and go to Inter, which he's talked about doing. Yeah. And like the natural successor to Simeone, unfortunately for you guys, would be Pochettino, who's yeah. also already been in Spain and, and you know had quite a nice life there. So I asked Kev this morning, and I'll ask you now: uh, Would you take Didier Deschamps as, as Spurs manager? You know, the funny thing was, David, uh, when we appointed AVB, Deschamps was my choice. That's who I wanted back back then. And I, I thought if he comes back to England, he's going to go to Chelsea. So yeah. I don't think that was, a, that was a runner. There's a name you've just mentioned that I think the FA should look at. Now, I don't know if he'd ever come back to England, given how the media treated him. Yeah. But, but V is Boas. Yeah. And he wants to be a race car driver. For most of the time, anyway, so that's yeah. fine. Show up, do your job that's for two it. weeks. It's a, a, a part time gig. Like, <laughs> he, he's tactically very good in the right circumstance. Mm-hmm. If he if he can, like, the problem he had at Spurs is that the players he wanted, he was given different players, and then he didn't get on with anybody because he's quite a, um, I don't know what the, what he's like sandpaper. You know, he rubs people the wrong mm-hmm. way. I, I just I think he might be better suited to international football because I think as well at Spurs when the pressure got on him mm-hmm. and the games were coming quick and fast like leading up to him when Liverpool played Spurs and I won't mention the score but um, I'm sure we wouldn't know what match you're talking about no, anyway exactly <laughs> but but you remember the pre- the pressure was mounting on him and the Liverpool game landed midweek and, and he then it was a have, Paulinho red card yeah uh, and he didn't have time to react whereas at international football you have one or two bad results you mightn't play again for two or three months 
Yeah. And so, research is his strongest asset. Yeah. I mean, if, you let, like, if you let him do his homework for a month and a half before yeah, a, a game, phenomenal, he's going to win. Yeah. yeah. All right. Like, well, unfortunately, we are uh, out of time because we just got into one giant mess of a topic and then didn't <laughs> stop. But it was obviously a great discussion and enjoyed speaking with you about it. Uh, but if you would like to tell people where they could reach you, now be a good time. Okay. So, um, anfieldindex.com. I'm part of the podcast team there. I rarely do anything anymore, though. Um, but check out the app on iTunes and Android. Um, Total Football on FM 88.9 in the GTA is my Sunday morning radio show with Steve Gennaro. Uh, it's rebroadcast on a podcast, as a podcast rather, on All in Sports Talk and the All in Sports Talk app. You can get that for Apple only at the moment, but soon to come for Android devices. Um, and I do this podcast and I do some World Football Index, but rarely enough. Uh, I'm Steve McGookin, and I occasionally contribute to this, the EPL Index, and uh, you can get me at, at Steve McGookin, all one word, on Twitter. Uh, I'm also the former chairman of the New York Spurs Supporters Club. You can get me at, at NY Spurs, follow the discussion there. And I also do a um, U.S. election podcast with Lawrence Donegan of The Guardian, uh, and that's on every Tuesday, and it's on bytheminute.com. Yeah, and I'm your host, Kevin DeVries. Uh, you can reach me on Twitter at Kevroff. I work with Dave a fair bit uh, over on uh, both football and All in Sports Talk, where you can find uh, both this show, our championship show, and our FPL show. Uh, those are at 9 o'clock Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, respectively. So check that out at All in Sports Talk or All in Sports Talk.com. Uh, also, uh, the FPL crew, so me and Rob Langevin, are now doing video content over at VIPbet.com, uh, talking about DFS fantasy stuff, so check that out. I also have a weekly article over at TheEaglesBeak.com, probably like six or seven other things that I'm forgetting at the moment. Uh, but if you want to see anything I'm doing, just check at Kevroff, and I'm sure I'll be tweeting or retweeting about it at some time. But thank you guys so much for coming on. It was a pleasure, and we hope you keep listening.